Hello, and welcome to the Tavern Chat Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Tenkar, and this is another of our Designers and Makers series of Fireside Chats. With me today, I have Tobias, probably best known as Albert, from D20 Pro. Welcome. Thank you, Tenkar. So, uh, before we... uh, before myself and Albert get into our deeper discussions later on, we're going to do what we normally do, which is hit them with the five basic questions that I, I, I hit everybody with. And the first question, which might be obvious, but maybe not, is uh, tell us about your first RPG experience. Yeah, so, oh, many, many moons ago, um, I got a box set for Star, uh, Star Frontiers, and oh my god I uh, that yes yeah and after you know after taking my crown and filling in the dice so we could see the numbers um my <laughs> older brother and i you know fought some giant centipedes that escaped from the zoo and were completely completely consumed with the idea of role-playing games um, so yeah it yeah. went from that to the little black uh the black plastic uh, car wars car games and and wizard duel that Steve Jackson would put out um, for road trips and eventually to D and I missed ODD um, and ended up in first edition. Uh, my, my father was military. And as we traveled around um, my older brother and I ended up in, in this, uh, this privates game. And so we ended up in this epic immortals campaign in, based in first edition and it was just it was completely um mind-blowing just how how expansive and all the things we could do and and whatnot and uh and then from there went to role master and and then i was just done that was just i was sold for life ad and d was my introduction but uh yeah in my once i I, I, I found like an income source. My role playing games I, I was Role Master, it was Merp, mm-hmm. uh all the pace setter games like Sandman and Space Ace and Chill and Time Master, uh Traveler. We we, we played them all, but A D and D was always the, the go to for us. Yeah, yeah, for us it was similar, right? We we played a lot of A D and D, we played Merp and Role Master. Um my my first programming experience uh outside of like CompuWiz and stuff like that with Commodore was um my first legitimate programming experience building programs from the ground up on my own was actually building role master character generators. And to date my go to for learning any new language is actually to build a role master character generator because there's enough complexity in tables and detailed records for building a role master character that is just a great way to get introduced to all the concepts in programming. That's really interesting. And and you're right, because role master characters were certainly complicated enough between uh, some of their abilities were like, like two abilities would would decide what your base was somewhere else and the amount of skills that you could have. Uh, Yeah. Damn. Because, Role, I think actually we played more Space Master than Role Master in the end. Yeah, I, I never actually got to play in a Space Master game. I have all the books, had had a whole campaign set up, and then we moved. And oh. 
you know, and then finding new groups is always tough. And so um, when I got back to the States, uh, most of my game was in Germany. When I got back to the States, um, played a lot of James Bond um, and uh, was introduced to the Forgotten Realms and went through some of the original uh, classic modules, you know, Giants, Drow and all that kind of stuff. And, and that was now a second edition. Um, and the group I ended up with was they had been playing for a good 10 years when I joined them. And so okay. it was about to derail their game that they, you know, had been, they were epically engaged in. Right. So. Well, that's pretty, uh, yeah, you're the yeah. first person that's, that's, that's uh, actually had TSR's most infamous science fiction game as their introduction to role-playing. <laughs> so um, I run, I run a lot of Spelljammer when I can. And I'm okay. always integrating Star Frontiers into my Spelljammer games. Um, so that way you basically have, you have crystal spheres that are high tech and low magic. And it's basically Star Frontiers, your, your deck apes are Yazarians, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And um, so it's, it's something that I've carried with me through the ages. I've actually disassembled the book and put it into a, into a, a ring binder. Uh, okay. So that way I could have the advanced rules, which came as a ring binder in the same place as the core rules. Okay, that makes sense. All right, so then here, this, then this follow-up question fits pretty well. What's your go-to RPG these days? Uh, I'm not actually all that particular about system, um, okay. but setting-wise, I usually fall back on Spelljammer. Um, I, I love the ability to have a, a blend of settings, a science and fantasy and and you know, the nice intersection between them um, in, yeah. So I will run, when I do run a game, I've run hybrids from the three, five, five E realm. So okay. starting with three, five, um, was running basically three, five as five E started to roll out, uh, the integrated the rules from a GM only standpoint. So that way my life as a GM was easier because making encounters and everything in five and fifth edition is much more simple than in three, five. Um, and it also added unique flavor. So as the players were encountering new creatures and whatnot throughout the spheres, their ability to, they would have a limited number of abilities, but they'd be able to reuse them throughout a combat uh, or an encounter. And this provided a different feel and gave the players a lot more wealth of options for what they could do because they're working from the the giant mass of three five content, while the creatures lived in the smaller, uh, you know, confines of a fifth edition creature, and yeah, it works out well. So that's actually my go to at this point is this hybrid, where I'll let players either build a pure fifth edition character or introduce the feet tree type dynamics from three point five. Well, it's interesting considering that the the initial uh, thoughts when they were playing with the D and D next, which became Five E, mm -hmm. was to have a system that you could bring your O D and D character with an A D and D character with a third edition character, and have them all at the same table. And you've kind of retro cloned what was their initial thoughts for the next edition. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and this influenced the work on D20 Pro as well. Uh, 
just because when we were building out our rule stuff there in the software, um, the idea was to allow it to be able to switch back and forth between fifth edition 3.5 or allow sort of a hybrid space um, because the, the there's this continuity between what is Dungeons and Dragons. Um, so long as we, you know, not to not to be negative on fourth edition, but the way it operated was so different from the other systems that it doesn't fit the same model where you can take ODD, the basic concepts of, and bring them forward all the way up to fifth edition. No, I, I, I certainly agree. <laughs> yeah, fourth is the outliner, but the, yeah. the history to fourth was that with third edition and 3.5, uh, certain certain bean counters at, at, at Wizards of the Coast, or was it Hasbro, uh, thought that by giving away the OGL, giving access to the system, letting third parties work off their stuff, was taking potential market away from them. So they, you can't revoke the OGL, but mm -hmm. you can attempt to kill the system, which is what they did, and bring in a new system that isn't based upon anything that was OGL, which 4th edition was its own game, and uh, they got a lot of pushback on that. And then when they introduced a game system license, which wasn't an OGL, uh, they got pushed back on that. And then mm -hmm. we got 5e. One of the first things people ask with, with 5e is, can we have an OGL? And they did that. Yeah. It, it is, it, 5, 5e jumps that. There's very little 4e influence in 5e. There's some. There is some, yeah. The, the way monsters work is definitely influenced by 4th uh, by edition in a good way. Right. right. Some of the things they did with powers and, and reusable recharge abilities and stuff like that is really interesting uh, from a from a GM mechanic. Um, I think a little less interesting from a player mechanic. But when you introduce the short, long rest that came from fourth edition and brought forward, yep. you know, the there, there are mechanics that I think were good in fourth edition that were buried underneath the normalization that fourth edition introduced. And so fifth edition brings back the uh, the good variety while still being balanced and right. brings forward some of the the successes from fourth edition so yeah it just it, it was interesting how that all uh, came out to be and and of course because of the switch to 4e Pathfinder became the the living 3.75 or whatever you want to call it you know right. third edition right. never left. Okay. Yeah. yeah, right. So, all right, so let's, let's skip on to uh, something a little bit different. Uh, sure. You've played, uh, obviously, a lot of different editions of D&D. And uh, one, one concept has, has been in all editions, although it's stressed more, I think, in a lot of the earlier ones, save or die. You know, as... Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So... Um, I'd like to hear your opinions on it. There's no wrong answer on this one. Yeah, so I think it's a good thing. Um, however, I think it has to be used sparingly. Like, uh, there are opportunities to a GM to use it pretty early on in a game and continue using it for the rest of the game. And it, it shouldn't really be used that way, in my opinion. It should be the kind of thing that comes in at a, a major pivot point when the situation is right and and the player should have a potentially decent chance of success against it. Certainly, they should have some out planned. Um, I, I happen to be 
not of the camp that a GM should be planning the demise of their players every week. Um, instead, yeah, TPKs, TPKs are just a little. Uh, they get more more than more than one a year, and that's a lot, in my opinion. Yeah. If you're running a weekly game, is yeah. uh, is bad, and even that might be bad. Yeah, my my general policy on this is story is much more important than than mechanics nine times out of ten. So long as everybody is moving the story forward, then I feel like the mechanics can be waved or winged as necessary. Um, not to say that we're basically playing a fate version of D and D, but the uh, but the concept is that if if you can if through role play you can talk your way through a situation, then I probably won't have you throw a charisma check beyond a cursory uh, low DC value just to sort of cement that this worked. Um, but the when it comes to save or die, um, it's it's one of these cases where you're introducing far more random chance than uh, than is representative of your player's development over time, um, because most of the save or die powers are vicious. Like Will of the Banshee is, you know, can can lay waste to everyone who can hear it, and that's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole lot. And the you know, if you have a, a bad guy who's actually high enough level to cast Will the Banshee and other things, then that's a that's a serious foe who um why wouldn't they have that memorized every day? You know, it's the and so being being conscious of um of not breaking your campaign, so long as that's being kept into account. I 100% wholeheartedly support save and die, save or die powers. Yeah, I mean, uh, you're similar to me. Like for, for me, save or die. First off, it shouldn't be that uh, random trap in a hallway which mm -hmm. results in a save or die. It should be the party gets to the MacGuffin, or you know, they know that there's great risk ahead and possibly great rewards, so they can make that decision. There should be a decision-making process in my mind when it comes to something like that. But not only that, it's like it's like spice. You know, you, you add a little spice to a dish, and it's the right spice, and it, and it bumps it up a notch or two. You add too much, you ruin it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, with the you know, using save or die as a if you do use save or die powers, my general belief is that you need to have the alternative. What happens if they fail? Do you do you have something in store for them that happens in the afterlife that potentially allows them to come back? Um, is there? Do you have a party B who's going to come in and maybe rescue party A? Um, and then you have the issue of do players want to switch characters or take the old one or take the new one? Uh, but the as long as you have a backup plan, I tend to think that it it's you shouldn't be afraid to use it. Um, I know I've gone into a couple of encounters where the players faced the ultimate risk in that, yes, they had to face someone with slaying powers. And, uh, and if they failed, that was it. We were done. I mean, this was, right. this was the final encounter in the campaign. And, um, well, it's, it's fun to say that, but if the bad guy gets away, or succeeds at what they're doing, then it just changes the entire dynamic of the world. And then they have to figure out if there's something they can do about that. But with the save or die, 
you know, it may not be these heroes who come in to, to save the day in the long run. Yeah, it, it, so. especially, it also, to some extent, depends on your game system. If you're playing Pathfinder and somebody dies at the table, that is not just game-changing, it can be game-stopping, because how much time is it going to take to generate a new one? Yeah, right. right exactly. if, you're playing, if you're playing, I don't know, Swords and Wizardry, or one of the old-school clones, or AD&D, you can probably get a character up and running in 10, 15 minutes. You're not going to do that in Pathfinder. Right, right. The other thing is that you, you know, D&D is, is likened to the revolving door for the afterlife, where characters die and come back and die and come back. Yeah. And the number of options to raise, reanimate, or reincarnate a character are numerous. And so again, so long as, so long as the power level of the party has reached a legitimately high level, then potential, potential TPK things certainly can fit right in and be, be appropriate. It, it's, it reminds the players that their characters are in fact mortal. Yes. Um, even if they have to basically sit out for half a session until the party can get someplace safe and raise them. Um, well, and uh, you know, I don't know, I don't remember if it's in 5e, but I know with AD&D, any kind of spell that could bring a character back from the dead, mm-hmm. whether it was Raise Dead or res- Resurrection or a Wish spell, all cost a caster years of their life. So I, you know, so if you if you use that, you know, especially if it was like an NPC, you want to bring somebody back, it's going to be very expensive. It's usually That's not right. monetary. It's usually a quest to bring this individual back or Gaius because you, you know, you're costing me uh, two years of my lifespan. Well, well it's, it's why it's, it's why reincarnate was so popular, right? Oh yeah, re- I don't think reincarnate didn't have that, and but you you probably came back like a centaur or some. Exactly, you came back as a random creature type, which was kind of awesome. I mean, um, it. I played in a I played in a longstanding game where we actually started at second ed uh, using uh, players' options, the black books. And then moved to three when when the early announcements of three and eventually three five, and um, the the GM had had a house rule the whole time, where the uh, the way that reincarnate worked is it had a different list depending on what plane you were on when the spell was cast. Interesting. So you had native creatures or races associated with the plane, um, and so we ended up not having to use it at all. And so this rule had just sort of sat in the back of his binder of house rules until we were actually in our final encounter, you know, several systems later. And, uh, and we actually were facing down the, uh, the Lich Queen of the Githyanki. So she's got her, her Vorpal two-handed sword and she's just lopping heads off left and right and, um, and takes out a couple of us and the Druid survives and, gets away with our bodies and brings us back. And one of our characters comes back as a gift Yankee. You know, the other one comes back um, as himself, strangely enough, you know, got the okay. same race class. Um, but it, it made for things to be very strange in the campaign because we had this, this once human now get Yankee who was leading a, an army against the get Yankee effectively. And yeah, anyway, it was fun. So I, I think well, save and die is important, 
because yeah, you see, get those great you get stories. Yeah, exactly. You get those great stories. So that 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 is a fun story in the end. That that's nice. Cool. All right. Well, here we're gonna hit you with the the, the last question. Sure. And then we'll uh, we'll we'll do our hex crawl or play in the sandbox, whatever we want to refer to it as. But you came in uh, to gaming with with AD and D. So how, how about how old were you? Oh, I want to say 10, 12. Okay, um, so you were, you were preteen. Yeah, yeah. You at 10 or 12, looking at you at this point in your life with what you're doing, volume no, game. I was eight. You were eight. <laughs> yeah. So you were eight. All right, so you, wow, you were eight. That eight-year-old looking at you now, with uh, D20 Pro and all this gaming behind you, what would that eight-year-old think of what you've accomplished? Um, probably some fist pumping and like the, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my I don't remember as much about my wishes and desires from back then as I do from after Gen Con started happening. Um, and I can tell you that the moment that Gen Con advertisements started showing up in Marvel Comics constantly. Right. Um, I had no greater desire than to get to Gen Con and participate. Um, uh. And you know, this persisted with me through all the various travels that I did with my father in the military and whatnot. And so now with what I do now, not only do I get to participate, I go there and I get to participate in industry events. Um, I, you know, my, I've had the opportunity to be part of, uh, pers you know, various gaming personalities, uh, personal gaming groups over time and think, things like that that are just, you know, fantastic. Um, with the, the group we had here in Massachusetts, which is where I'm based out of right now, um, mm -hmm. We, our group ended up with, um, I don't know if, if this is the right context for, I, I don't know if I should give out people's names, but we ended up with one of the, the main figures for Gen Con in its current incarnation, um, came out of our gaming group. One of the lead designers for fifth edition um, came out of our gaming group. Um, you know, and these are, these are all pieces and parts of this whole space that I'm just so happy to be part of. Um, and then on top of that, with uh, with my experiences with MindGene for D20 Pro before our company bought it and took over, um, met all sorts of great people from Frog Art Games, from Legendary Games, you know, from uh, Cobalt Press, and just just all over the place. Um, it's yeah. So I think I'd be a little in awe of myself, um, but it's it's still a little surreal. If I were to I, answer I, your question. No, I can understand that completely because, you know, uh, you, you're looking at somebody who, uh, I guess, I, I came into gaming around 12 or 13, and I went to Gen Con once. That was in 94. And now, if you look at me over the last couple of years, I go to, now I'm going to, what, five conventions this year, uh, r running games, working a table, getting to meet people like, uh, 
Ernie Gygax, Merle Rasmussen, Frank Metzner, you know, Tim Cask, which when you first started meeting people like that, you're suddenly, I, I can't believe it. Now you're meeting people like that and you're like, yeah, I, I, it, it, it's cool, but it, you're, you're no longer in that shock and awe part of your life now. You're kind of like, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, they're real, they're real people. Well, so I, I have sort of an anecdotal story along the shock and awe angle, sure. right? So, um, when I first started doing the convention circuit, uh, this was a good 10 plus years ago now, um, I found myself out at PAX Prime um, with Geek Chic. And uh, my friend who had just recently started working for, uh, for Gen Con lives out in Seattle, which makes sense, right? And so mm -hmm. he and I met up and he's like, oh, hey, why don't you come with me to go um, meeting up with a friend of mine to have sushi? And so he takes me over to the sushi shop and and we sit down and then I realize that the group that I'm with has just come to meet with this other group that is being led by Will Wheaton. Oh, damn. And I'm just like, I was, I actually, in fact, was completely speechless as a, as a Trek fan and, you know, and general fan of Will Wheaton's subsequent works, both, you know, audio books and just general presence and what he's represented. Um, right. I honestly hadn't had that celebrity's like no ability to speak problem prior to that point. And yeah, gibbering mess is how I describe myself. <laughs> so, well, here yeah, I, I actually do have, uh, the, the gibbering mess mess. Uh, I was at North Texas RPG con. I don't know, maybe three years ago. Maybe it was four. It was a. It was uh, probably four. Uh, and it was like it was probably my second time going to the con, and I got to meet people. I mean, you know, shook hands with Frank Metzner. That was awesome. But uh, going on to the elevator, me and my wife were about to get on, and on the elevator, as the doors open up, I don't even remember who Jeff Grubb was with, but it was Jeff Grubb. And I always loved Jeff's work on uh, AD&D titles in, in the second edition of, you know, sure. Marvel Supers. But he sees my name tag and he goes, oh, my God, you're Eric Tenkar. I read your blog on a daily basis. <laughs> da, 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 da. <laughs> Doors closed. We never got on. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> Oh God! It you was broke just, you. <laughs> yeah, and my wife's like, "Who was that?" Uh, that, uh, that, uh, that. Uh, well, he knows. He knows who you are. I go, yeah. That's why I can't. Couldn't talk. Okay, you didn't sound great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the same show that I was at. So that same first Pax Prime, um, or I guess Pax uh, West, as it is now referred to. Um, I was I was demoing this touch table that you know we just built this is uh v1 of our our touch technology and and i'm up on the up on the sky bridge i'm all by myself the the other folks from geek chic have gone off to get lunch or something and i'm sort of minding the minding the shop um and um and this guy comes up in a steve jackson you know polo and um mm -hmm. says all right so i'm gonna bring somebody up to talk to you in just a minute um you'll have 15 minutes total to tell him about your product and he's really interested, but then we've got to go. Uh, can you do that? 
And it's like, well, sure. So, I mean, that's why I'm here. And this is, this is the yeah. whole point of why I'm here. In fact, of course I can. And then when it is in fact, Steve Jackson himself, and it was very hard. This is somebody who to me was very instrumental in, in a lot of my varied gameplay. Um, so when we weren't doing D and D or some variant of D and D, um, we were playing GURPS, right? So when, when Vampire the Masquerade uh, was getting to be popular, we were playing GURPS varieties of it. We played a, a homebrew GURPS Star Wars. You know, we played uh, all sorts of GURPS, GURPS Supers, GURPS, you know, Future Tech, uh, all over the place. And so, and then of course, as I mentioned earlier, um, in my childhood, we played a lot of the little black plastic box uh, games from Steve Jackson as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, and so, you know, this was somebody who had been extremely instrumental in my development as a human, whether he, he, he himself was involved or not. Um, and so it was extremely hard to stay on topic because I just wanted to thank him for yeah. all that he and his company had done for me inadvertently over the years. And so when we were finally done, I did ask if I could say, you know, if I could say something personal and he said, sure, go ahead. And, and I told him, thanks for you know, all that he and his company had done by creating such great games over the years. Um, and uh, I could have gone home then and just been happy for the rest of my days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I finally got to meet Steve Jackson at a game hall this past year. And, uh, well, and, 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 you know, everybody wants to talk with, with, with Steve and, you know, but I actually got to sit down with Phil Reed and nice. really talk. I, I, I followed Phil's stuff back when he used to do like a, a, a daily, back in the earlier days of the internet, like a daily mailing of like uh, GM ideas. And I used to subscribe to that. And I told, I told him, I was like, wow, you've been following you. Because we kind of know each other for a while because he's been followed the blog side of stuff. And we actually had a, we, we we had uh, you know a nice uh, sit down and talk, and then he was in Manhattan about a month ago, right before we went to TotalCon. And uh, he's like, "Yeah, I'm gonna be in Manhattan." He goes, uh, "Meet me for lunch." And then he gave me and he gave me the fantasy trip, the uh, the demo copy he was traveling with. Nice. So, awesome. that, so that that was nice. But if you would ask like you know the 13 year old me if I would be sitting down with like you know. The, the chief operating officer of Steve Jackson games uh, at a bar in Manhattan, having a nice, you know, Irish brunch. I, I'd be like, you're full of shit. And this is, there's, there's, <laughs> there's no way you would know anybody in the gaming industry. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. And it, it's even more beautiful when you get to realize that, you know, when you were younger, everybody that was like in those positions were like magical and they still kind of are, but at the same time, you can still like you have that adult perspective of, and they work uh, a, a nine to five or longer job. They're here because of hard work. Yeah. And you can appreciate it in a, in a different way too. But yeah. 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 So, you know, again, to take to take my young self and um, and map it to today, uh, the the thing that I think would be most that would probably for me the most beyond the celebrity connections and whatnot is um, is being able to look at the player's handbook and say, that is my rule, right? So when, 
when our friend who was GMing for us at the time went to interview for Wizards, um, he, he interviewed all of us, his gaming group, for what we thought a new game system should look like. And the current fifth edition hit point mechanic is the one that I had come up with that I thought was the most fair to Wizards and various other people. And so to see that be a published rule is just oh, wow. really cool, right? From a from a fan standpoint, and and a personal standpoint, um, and so I think that's probably my the thing that would would please my younger self because I know that as a as an individual that's the one that makes me really happy, right? Um, but probably the weirdest moment, um, which I know isn't the question, but the weirdest moment right. for me was being at Gen Con and being recognized as owlbear by people I had never heard or seen before and them wanting to get pictures with me. Like they wanted these pictures for their blog that they met owlbear. It's like, I didn't know that I was a celebrity in that fashion, <laughs> but <laughs> all right then. <laughs> sure. I don't mind. <laughs> um, oh God. That, that, that's, that's funny. See now, now, uh, uh, to take that to the opposite direction, my first North Texas was, I think, 2013. And uh, went with my wife. It was my first convention in, I don't know, probably close to 20 years. And uh, we got there the night before, and it's Wednesday night, and went to the hotel swimming pool. It's indoors, and it's Texas. It's hot out there, so you, you want that pool. And there's only one, there's one other person in the pool, so my wife's going to me, God, do you think he's here for the convention? I'm like, well, yeah, it's quite possible. So uh, she she goes up to him, and she's like, oh, hi, how are you here for the convention? He's like, yeah. He goes, oh, well, then you must know who my husband is. This right, you know, Tank Cars Tavern is one of the larger OSR blogs, so uh, old school gaming blogs. So he's like, oh, well, who? It's Tank Car, Eric Tank Car. Never heard of him. So my wife was flushed. She's like, how could you never have heard of him? Like, it, it was it was funny to watch my wife, right? Like, yeah, right. And so I said to him, I go, uh, all right, so you don't read blogs, right? He goes, no, uh, you, you read forums. He goes, yeah. I go, Dragon's Foot? He's, he's like, yeah, Dragon's Foot. I go, yeah, Rach, relax. He goes, there's like two different worlds within gaming when it comes to people on the internet. And they don't always, like, you know, match up. So my wife was hoping that she could show off her husband. And instead she found somebody at a gaming con who had no clue who I was. So follow-ups. Yeah. But now at like at, at like uh, game hall I had people recognizing me from my voice. Yeah, right, which would make a lot of sense because of all the podcasts and yeah. shows like and this I, one. Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay. So that that's that because I had people recognize you know, oh ten car I read your blog yeah but now I had people hear my voice and I hear like from like ten feet away, hey ten card I recognize that New York voice. <laughs> Is it good or bad? I'm not quite sure. I think it's good. I think it's good. I mean, honestly, I feel like, um, I, I don't know if you feel the same way, but I don't, I don't feel like anyone special in the industry. Right. Uh, I, I work on, I work on software to make gamers be able to play games. Right. And beyond that have done, the, the touch table stuff to sort of introduce the concept to folks and inspire the idea to see how, where people could go with it. But those contributions in and of themselves are not specifically, I think, celebrity worthy. Um, yeah. 
And yeah, so I, I look at it as as an indication that our space is one where where people can just like people for being decent folk and like-minded. And uh, and that's really encouraging, right? It is. For me anyway, I feel like that's a good thing. Yeah, and, and you're getting recognized because you're giving something to the community that they can use, you know, and that makes you want to keep doing it. it sometimes they, you know, uh, especially if you're a, if you're a blogger on a podcast, you're not getting, getting paid for it. So the, the the compensation you get is the goodwill of the people that you are, I guess, entertaining, and uh, that is is priceless. Right. Right. Now the other thing to note is, um, no, I lost it. Sorry, I I thought I had an ad to that, but I don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, then we'll we'll do this. Um, I got a question for you. Sure. How did how did uh, D twenty Pro come about? How did... So, the the folks at MindGene who who were the original developers for D twenty Pro um, were a gaming group, right? Just like any other. And uh, the main difference was that um, a number of them were developers, software developers, and okay. so they decided that they wanted to make a system that allow them to keep playing when they inevitably got out of school. Ah. And so they created this, this very straightforward and predominantly combat oriented system originally uh, to, to manage that part of the, the game. And then they were just going to use, uh, you know, ICQ, AOL chat, that kind of stuff to do their voice. Um, so they could, so they could play and communicate. D20 Pro grew substantially out of that and very quickly into a full virtual tabletop um, with mapping and all the rest of it. Uh, the original system was called Ravager or something and was a 100% internal use only product um, that technically still exists somewhere. I know when, when my wife and I took over D20 Pro, um, one of the things we, we dealt with was actually separating Ravager from D20 Pro because they used to share servers. Uh. So we wanted to make sure that Ravager didn't go down because that was the thing that MindGene used for their personal games um, as sort of tracking from, from the way back when. And so I don't know what the current status is. Uh, but yeah, so that's, that's where that came from. Um, when for for myself, um, I got into virtual tabletops, and the way I ended up working with D20 Pro is probably uh, a more direct, you know, more personal question, uh, and that has to do with as a GM, uh, I have always been fascinated with maps. I love maps, and so I would have these very detailed maps, and I got frustrated with having to redraw content. Uh, when the players wanted to revisit an area or uh, or backtrack or whatnot, um, and and so rather than rather and I work in technology. I was I was working for Boston University's IT department at the time, and so a lot of the people I was playing with were also technology folks, um, and so I, I had come across this technology to do uh, infrared based touch, where you had basically cameras behind a screen. And um, and then you project it onto the screen, and 
and then you could uh, your fingers touching an acrylic screen would effectively cause blobs. You see the blobs, those are touches, and then you interact as if they're mouse points or mouse clicks. And so I started building some basic prototypes on paper. Um, my wife gave me the gift of hardware for Christmas along Ooh. the lines of, you know, here's some starter gear to make your new touchscreen idea you're working on. And so um, built and designed this custom touchscreen that would allow us to do what previously was being done at like 13 feet um, to 10 feet sort of minimum sizes to work okay. in an 18 inch space. So we could get a 40-ish a to 50 inch screen size on a coffee table uh, with this touch. And so once we had that, it was just a matter of getting a display. So originally I was using like Photoshop and mask layers and stuff like that. Uh, came across Map Tools, which is an open source project that's pretty awesome. I um, played with it back in the day. Yep. And and so I was using Map Tools and because um, it, it was open source, it was the right price, and I could integrate it with my touch drivers I was writing. And so um, built that out for our group and uh, and then was at PAX in Boston the very first year that it was here in Boston and uh, ran into Geek Chic, uh, to Rob Gifford at the time, who was running Geek Chic. Um, they had these beautiful tables that had this interesting feature, which was a removable bottom. So they basically were a beautiful table frame that could hold a rigid sheet of material on these little nubs at the corners, because that's how they put their game surfaces in. Oh. So like, hey, how much for one of these tables with no bottom? I don't need that crap. <laughs> uh-huh. And apparently this was an odd enough request that I ended up talking to Rob himself. He's like, well, so what exactly are you trying to do that you don't need a bottom for your table or a top? Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, well, so I, I've got this touch system I've built, which is a sheet of acrylic with some LEDs. And then I just need a, a space at the bottom to put some cameras in our projector. It'll just all shine up. And then it all re- feeds back down and you know we'll be good to go. And so he said, well, how would you like to build that with me by Gen Con in two months? And so that's what started Mesa Mundi as a company that got me out to Gen Con uh, where we showed our first touch table um, at their booth. We built it at Gen Con uh, sight unseen. They built their enclosure out in Seattle. I built my touch stuff in Massachusetts and then we brought it all together at the show on the floor wow. um, and hoped it worked yeah. um, and it did, which is great. And, uh, and then um, the interesting side of that is that that's how I met uh, Doug Davison from fantasy grounds, met Matt Morton from mind gene from D 20 pro. And both of them are like, asked me the same question, which is why are you running map tools and not my software? Um, and they both gave me a free copy of their software on the spot. So I installed both pieces of software. D20 Pro worked and Fantasy Grounds didn't. And so (laughs) um, the rest is history. (laughs) There you go, okay, yeah, definitely. (laughs) Really what it came down to for me was, um, I found Matt to be, Matt was very engaged and accessible. He was really interested in what I was doing and what I liked about map tools and it started doing development along the lines of these are the things that I think are important in a VTT. And so there was a bit of catering to my needs that certainly attracted me as well. Um, 
but he and I also just hit it off and became good friends. And so when he decided to retire from the virtual tabletop space and was talking about closing down D20 Pro, my wife and I said, look, well, why don't we make an offer and we can roll that into Mesa Monday and that can become one of our core products. Um, and so we sort of brought it back from the brink, if you will, and have been working on um, massive updates and renovations to the infrastructure ever since. Well, that's, that's an interesting history to that. Yeah. Very cool. So, all right, so where, so where is D20 Pro now and where is it going? I mean, I, I'm, yeah. I'm a VTT junkie. I haven't, I, I haven't run a game though online in almost a year and a half. So uh, I, I'm a bit removed right now, but so, I'd like to know what we got. Yeah, so D20 Pro now, um, has a lot of interesting new features. You know, we've uh, we we basically started the automation kick that is that is all the rage these days um, with our scripting engine and rules API. Um, and so that set a, a set of precedent for other VTTs to be able to handle custom rules and and script injection. Um, we've Excuse me. What we've done is we've added an in-application JavaScript engine, so you can create custom scripts and behaviors if you're a programmer or if okay. you're a programming hack. You don't have to be a true programmer. And then we provide a whole bunch of existing scripts as well. These scripts then become commands you can use in this graphical programming interface, which is a flowchart system, where you basically define the flow of an effect, like a fireball, right? So you, a fireball feature would have a saving throw, a map template, a um, an effect, and the effect would have what type of effect? It's a hit point effect, and then it does some programmatic damage dice based off of caster level and overcasting if it's fifth edition, that sort of thing. Um, and so all of that stuff can be done without any programming. And then if you wanna add custom features, you can add that through the scripting engine as well. Um, so that's that's sort of where that's the major thing we've added in the last uh, two years is the rules okay. engine and the scripting engine, and then you know now we're working on um, D20 Pro was written at a point where grids were king and they didn't care uh, one whit about hexes, and so the the internal language of the grid exists throughout the application, um, and so I've been going through and rewriting this uh, integer math grid so it's able to handle more natural floating point math and so we can get to putting hexes and free grids and so we just introduced our first pass at free grids um, about a month ago so basically if you make a free grid map uh, you can move your token arbitrarily around the map um, it's not it's not truly a a free arbitrary grid, what it is is we've segmented the grid into 10 segments. So it's each grid unit is basically 10 by 10. Oh, okay, I uh, gotcha. And that allows you some very granular movement, but it still lets us use the uh, the grid notation that D20 Pro had internally to make sure that we're targeting the right targets and, and all that kind of stuff. It's, it is definitely a workaround with a, a true full map revamp coming down the pipe in the near future. Um, we've been taking 
D20 Pro is almost all text file based for doing modifications, classes, uh, skills, spells, all this kind of stuff was all in text files. Um, we've been promoting all those to be internal libraries. So that way you can actually have your entire rule set as a library inside your application exported and imported to different games, um, mix and match. So if you wanted to run, you know, my version of 3.5 slash 5e spell jammer stuff, you could take that rule set, which is a amalgamation of 3.5 spells and fifth edition spells and have all those exist in the same framework and, and be addressable. Um, classes as well um, we the system used to have a, a clear delineation between what a class is and what a what a race is and we've done away with that because there's really a class is almost a superset of a race to harken back to ODD right where right. class and race really were the same thing um, d20 pro treats classes and races as the same type of thing uh, only a a race generally has a level zero or level one rating, um, but there's nothing in, in the way we've written it that prevents you from having a race contain all of the features of, of what a 3.5 or 5e class has, you know, spell lists and feat progression and all that other kind of stuff. Um, so, so you could do races classes at base. Very easy. Yeah. That's, that's just built in. Um, Interesting. Yeah. I think that's one of the questions I skipped over. Usually I ask you, you know, you know, where you feel, what you feel about racist class. And inadvertently, we just came up with the question. Does that mean? There you go. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. So to to answer that more directly, um, I personally don't feel that there's a lot of difference between the two. Um, Depending on the game system, it really does come down to classes either have levels or they don't. Races either have levels or they don't. You know, there, there's always some metric for progression in a game system. Right. And it just happens to be levels is an easy one to manage. Um, if you wanted to do a progression for a system that didn't have levels, but had some other type of metric that when you reached a, or like a milestone game, right? You can literally just use the same level engine to do milestones. And it's just every time they get a milestone, you bump up that level number to match the new milestone they're at. And that'll unlock some slew of new features for the player um, or for the character. And you know, you don't. Ha- it doesn't have to increment hit points or anything like that. Um, one of the things I liked about the mentality for D20 Pro is that it does support rules automation, but it doesn't have to, right? Uh, okay. It's a it's a representation of whatever data you want to put in a character. So if you want to make your character sheet only contain hit points and a name and an image, and that's all you ever want to fill out, that's fine. That's, you know, that's more than some people fill out. Um, the a virtual tabletop is a tool for, for keeping track of token locations and maps and sharing visual data, right? And potentially audio data as well. Um, and so, D20 Pro is built so it can support that minimal level of experience or a full game with rules mechanics and engine mechanics all built into it. So you can go from super basic to super involved and it's, you know, it's entirely up to the person using the system. Um, so yeah, that's sort of, that's sort of where we're at right now. Let's see video maps. 
So video backgrounds is a big one as well that we added this year or Ooh, added last that, year. So really nice. That yeah. sounds interesting. Yeah. So I don't know if you're familiar with Dynamic Dungeons. This this uh, this Patreon that this guy's running where he builds out these great top-down full motion maps. No. And they're they're beautiful. And so the idea is that we wanted to be able to allow for linking of your motion map as a map background. And so um, this goes hand in hand with some of the other things we're working on for dynamic character sheets and stuff where we've integrated um, a full version of Chrome with media licensing. So we have the ability to play back MP4s, MP3s, you know, and MPEGs and whatnot um, in, in our application. And the way it works is that if you give a URL for your map background, it will read the, the video source of that URL and scale it to fit your map. So then you can paint your grid or whatever reference you want on top of that video. And then all your tokens, fog of war, everything else can be drawn right on top of the video, which will play in the background. So long as it's an external to you source, you know, like a Dropbox or Drive mm -hmm. or something like that, or even YouTube, um, you can link that location and push that link to your players, and they'll also be able to stream the content from the source. Uh, right now, we're not doing video streaming from your computer uh, for several reasons. One is it's just a bandwidth hog. Um, right. And at the time that we implemented it, we were using a service called PubNub, where we were paying for the bytes being sent across our network. So we didn't want to have to send every frame of a video file over the network consistently for you know six to eight hours or yeah. as people were playing. Um, so we set it up so you can put this into wherever your file repo is and and access the files from there. Um, but the the next thing we're working on as we've had to deprecate the PubNub stuff because they changed their pricing. I won't go into details on that, but it was not fun. I'm um, sure. So the uh, so we're actually moving the whole system over to Steam and Steam's network. And so I'm currently talking to Valve about whether or not we can stream video over their network at no additional cost. And the answer seems to be yes. We're just getting validation. Cool. So at that point, we'd be able to let you actually stream from your computer um, video as part of your map. So you don't have to have, you don't have to upload it to an external source. Um, but yeah, so with that, we added weather effects. So you can put a weather layer on your maps. Um, there's an overlay layer as well, which I haven't enabled yet for the public, but it's basically, this is another HTML layer that lets you bring in um, external tools as an overlay on top of your map. That's, that's the dog in the background. No problem. Danke. Relax. <laughs> I I I I know what it is. It's 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 uh, my my sister must be downstairs with my niece. No big deal. But here, doggy, yeah. come come with me. <laughs> I'll hold you. You'll, you'll you'll see you'll see your human sister in a little bit. Nice. Yeah. The uh, so let's see. Then the the other thing we've done. Um, so in addition to that, we added an extension system, um, which allows you to link external applications through our extensions panel, which is basically a customized uh, Chrome browser. Okay. So what this does is it has bindings, so that way um, applications can communicate with D20 Pro and back from D20 Pro to the application, web application. So for instance, an interactive character sheet 
could pass data from your token to or from the application. Um, and so then with that, we also added in our 3D dice roller um, and a basic card system. Right now, the deck of cards isn't networked. Um, it's very it's localized, but it shares the draws from the deck uh, to the game log. So it gives you the basic functions of, um, you know, so I own a deck of many things where well, I can draw the card from my deck and right. find out what, what card was drawn. Okay, and I guess you could replicate stuff for uh, Savage War to use exactly, the deck. Right. Castle Falkenstein, that kind of stuff. Okay, cool. Yeah, so once once the networking's in place, then you'll be able to actually have a single deck that the GM owns and players are given a hand versus everyone having their own deck. Uh, the way you access that right now is on a token base. So you'd click on your token and open up the dice box and cards tool. And that okay. gives you access to the 3D dice and the uh, and the card system as a separate window um, with tabs. So you can switch between the two. So those are fun, uh, but this is all Definitely. using our HTML engines. So that way you can basically inject any HTML you want into the UI for D20 Pro now. Um, uh. Yeah, it, it does all sorts of things. So we have a um, Krillian Greyjoy, who's our community manager, um, runs a Star Wars game and he just shared his dice roller that he uses for the Fantasy Flight Star Wars um, that basically gives you a custom dice roller through this API that you just drop it into your HTML folder in the application, you access it through extensions, and then your players get the same thing. And then they all use that for rolling their dice and it rolls the appropriate Star Wars-esque stuff, which is- Oh, that's funny. damn cool. Yeah. Hmm. Nice. You got a lot of stuff uh, uh, that's that's either just done or just coming, just about ready. Yeah, yeah. I mean, basically last year, about this time, actually, we rolled out the feature system, and that's when you went from having basics. So D20 Pro always had what they called their ability system, which allowed them to perform various actions on tokens and change stats and you know track initiative and or sorry track duration and things mm -hmm. like that for spells and everything. But there was no way to share that data between campaigns or even uh, between other players. It was very much, this is my set of abilities and you need to code your own. And um, that had always been a sore point with the community. So we spent a lot of time building out this engine so we could have a global rules repository and then that gets pushed out to all the players. So the GM serves that data to the players Players can even add data back to the rules library from their side so they can say, oh, I created the spell or here's the variant of fireball that I use uh, for my character, you know, that sort of thing. And then on top of that, we bound the effects to map templates. So for instance, if you wanted to throw cloud kill, which is a classic spell that has changed over the years, but not, not, in, not in many respects, right? It's a rolling right. cloud of gas that does horrible things to anyone caught in it. Yep. And the key thing is a rolling cloud of gas. So there is no way in the old version of D20 Pro to model a rolling cloud of gas other than to cancel the effect and recast it every round as uh, it moves across okay. the map, right? So with the new system, when the caster's turn comes up, 
they get a prompt to move the move the cloud and it reapplies on any newly acquired creatures and has um it has triggers for what we call on enter and on exit as well as on stay and so a creature who remains in the cloud on their initiative has effects that occur to them a character who enters the cloud on their own initiative or because the cloud rolled over them um, have effects that happen you know that are immediately applied um, supplying they don't save and if you leave the cloud then there are beneficial effects because you know except that cancel some of the non-lingering effects of the cloud and so the ability to have this trigger system and movable templates just opened up a world of things like we can handle teleportation now we can handle stairwells that transport you from map to map um, you know that kind of stuff um, that's pretty darn good yeah yeah exactly wow i like i said i, I i've been away from uh these for about a year and a half and uh i i had no idea that there was a vtt that could do this stuff yeah we've been we've been working very hard to uh, basically build an engine that lets you run role-playing games and maintain the role-playing game feel but allow you the capabilities of things that you get in a game engine right for for actually creating like a video game mm -hmm. or, but we're trying to skirt that line so we don't slip into video game engine. Right, I gotcha. Because that's, you know, we want to provide the power that you could have from a video game engine without actually being a video game engine. If somebody was really interested in it, there's nothing that would prevent them from creating a script that on each initiative moved enemy tokens around the map, around a circuit, you know, and automated that. Right. Um, but we're not providing that and, you know, that's something that they'd have to build based off of these samples we have. Interesting. Yeah. That was actually, uh, that, that would be a way, I guess, if you to solo. Right. And, and initially, initially I was super excited about the idea of building out uh, single player adventures. I remember growing up getting, uh, getting adventures that were basically glorified, pick your own adventure path, D and D model. Uh, yep. And they were fun, right? They were super fun. Um, but at the same time, the idea of D20 Pro as a platform is social and, right. and it's about sharing a space and the, um, we're a super small team, right? There's, I'm the sole developer on the project right now. We have one community manager who doubles as one of our content builders. We have one content manager who doubles as a content builder and, and does a bunch of our PR management. Um, and then, uh, and then we have a pure content developer, right. Who works on rules and, and content conversions, but that's the, that's the D20 pro team. That's all of them. Um, and so that means that we don't have time to, uh, to really dedicate to supporting a single player experience in addition to the multiplayer experience. Uh, you know, there, there are two different uh levels of service that would be right. required to support them and supporting those tiers of service is unfortunately outside of our our capabilities with the small team that's understandable i mean it, it, virtual tabletops uh, having I'll, I'll, I'll compare to what i would have thought of as a kid the audience for them is huge but 
uh, you know, it, it's still a small part of the, 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 the much larger gaming public. I, I love it because yeah. I get to game with people from Canada, Europe, Florida, all over the world, and I don't have to worry about location. Yeah, and that's where that's where the upcoming Steam integration is so important. Um, game finding has always been a problem for for communities. Uh, you know, this is where Roll Twenty sits at the head. Is that their their community finding capabilities are very high, um, whereas our community finding abilities were virtually non-existent. We we had been working with a couple of different online sources to to network gamers, and that has those services tend to survive for a while and then fade. And so, right. you know, the the one that we had been using finally closed its doors and is done. And so going with Steam, uh, with Valve Steam platform, we'll be able to actually do public lobbies again and allow people to advertise games, like looking for players and things like that. So I'm pretty excited about that that opportunity. It looks like 2019 is going to be a potentially very huge year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the first pass on Steam will include the, the full lobby support. That'll take me some time to build out in in its entirety. But the first Steam Pass will will provide the software and then provide Steam networking and then provide full lobby and game finding, you know, matchmaking. Damn. All right. A lot of stuff to look forward to and a lot of stuff for uh, me to start playing around with. At some point this summer, I want to get back to running a campaign online. So yeah. this might well, be my way. If you use character builders, um, you know we have we have support for Hero Lab Online. We have support for PC Gen. Um, we just updated to the most recent PC Gen uh, last month. The Hero Lab Online stuff hasn't changed, so that's in good shape. Um, and you know, as we mentioned earlier, if you've got some old uh, online D and D four E exports you can import those guys too <laughs> no uh, we, we listen uh, no 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 for it's probably going to be uh, a variant of swords and wizardry and, and and the kicker is this i mean a couple of years ago world 20 reached out to me and they wanted to uh record one of my sessions with me using world 20 uh with my group because fairly well-known blogger i guess in the old school gaming and i had to break it to them i go um yeah what we basically used is a map, fog and war, and a dice roller. I go, we we were minimalists at the time. I go, I I don't even usually put you know, uh, you know the the, the pongs the pogs on the screen right, to move right. around. But so they didn't get back to me after I told them that. Because I said it was it wasn't going to be a great way. It, it did its purpose. You know, I that being said, uh, I have from like Frog Guy Games and other great artists like uh, Devin Knight. I have so many virtual basically tokens that I'd love to use. Yeah, so, yeah absolutely. But yeah, no, I, so, you know, for, for content you have yourself, that's one of the things that we offer that I think is really important. So D20 Pro, since it's a, it's a desktop application, you run it off of your computer. Right. Um, all the content you import lives with you wherever you are and is only limited oh, by cool. file storage. You don't have to worry about online storage or quotas or anything like that. Um, and so the, what's nice about that is if you've got a huge library of tokens, you just import them all. Um, and that's because the system is uh, 
has been around for a long time. Um, there's actually, you can actually manually add tokens as a batch. You can just literally copy files into a file folder and oh, really? there, right? You don't have to go through the application import and convert and all this kind of stuff unless you want to or need to. The other thing is Devin Knight, you know, we've been working with Devin for years and years. And so um, Morton and his guys over at MindGene were very close with Devin Knight. And so, I mean, we have tons and tons of his tokens for free for D20 Pro already configured and ready to go, organized and everything. And this then of stuff course, is awesome. yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, so, you know, importing content, super easy. Um, plenty of stuff in the marketplace to get kickstarted with. And what you described is exactly what I was talking about at that base level of, of usage, right? It's the, I need right. a way to share maps or, or environmental setting pieces. I need a way to roll dice that is shared between my online players um, and or a way for them to tell me what dice they rolled with their actual physical dice. So that way I know what the rolls were and it's recorded in some way, you know, and then potentially a way to store some character records for basic stats like hit points would be nice, but it's not a requirement, you know, excuse me. And then fog of war, you know, we've got a couple of different ways to handle it. We've got super simple um, paint the whole thing with boxes and clear the boxes when you want to show things mm -hmm. to a, a polygon system where you draw in polygon shapes and they block out the area under the polygon. You can reveal, you can toggle the polygons on or off uh, to reveal entire areas. Or you can uh, use our dynamic lighting where you actually have a token on the map with a light source. And as you drag the light, the token around, it drags the light source, which is attached to it and reveals the map according to, you know, shadow casting and uh, dynamic lighting. So, That's cool. And actually one of the things we added just before the end of the year was uh, alpha blending. So we have blend modes on Windows machines and Linux machines that have OpenGL support. Mac removed OpenGL support, so it's not there right now. But the um, on Windows and, and Linux, what you end up getting is the ability to actually have additive light. So as you bring more light sources together of the same basic color palette, they'll actually okay. cause a brighter area to bloom. So it's sort of oh, like you're tossing torches on top of each other to create a bonfire. Uh, okay. Um, it's not increasing the radius at this point, although that's actually fairly easy to do in engine. You know, as you need it, you can bump mm -hmm. the radius on a light. So, um, but yeah, right. so pretty cool. Uh, lots of options. And, you know, be happy to show you around someday if you want. Oh, dude, that's an offer I would gladly take you up on. Uh, Certainly. Awesome. Definitely. All right, cool. Well, Albert, thank you very much, man. Oh, no problem. Thank you for having me. Uh, no, they, uh, just so uh, the listeners know, if you go to the show notes, I'm going to include a link uh, for uh, roll, uh, for uh, D20. Yeah. I have a dog held against my chest right now. So if you it's okay. Me, I, I threw I threw a shout out basically to everybody. So you know. No, you did. You've, you've, named, you've named virtually every, every uh, VTT out there, uh, with very few exceptions. I think Battlegrounds, uh, but the only one we missed. Yeah, and you know, uh, again, um, there that's an interesting one as well. Um, 
I don't know what his new build is. The previous one was flash based and I just, there came a point where I couldn't use it anymore. Um, Battlegrounds was actually the one I was reviewing as a person, you know, as a, as an individual when I ended up at map tools, right? I, I actually had bought my license to Battlegrounds and was using it and thought this is almost exactly what I'm looking for. Um, now what he does have that's pretty good right now is his mapping tool. Um, and that's moving yes. along pretty well. So. Yes, and I, I, I've mentioned that on the blog side. It's really, really cool. So Ours is unfortunately still in the works um, because we switched over to Unity from HTML5, and so the conversion is taking longer than I'd hoped for. We're basically a year behind, which is not okay. something I'm excited about. But it's still work, still under work, so World Engine will happen. Well, if you were a Kickstarter, you'd be uh, you're behind. It's like right on time. It is a Kickstarter. So guess we're oh, right on you time. Oh, you're right on time. <laughs> I didn't even realize that, but no, seriously. Uh, yeah. Again, Albert, thank you. And thank you for the offer to show me around. I'll, I'll definitely take you up on it. Excellent. And uh, like I said, I'll, I'll include uh, a link in the show notes. And uh, as always, folks, uh, stay safe. God bless. Roll your dice well. And uh, I'll talk with you all later. Thank you.